Everything they do is to present an avatar or uh, a type of person they think people would like. What's shaking? Welcome back to the All In Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Jordan. There's not a lot of times that I talk about this too much on the show, but I am an ordained pastor. Not many people knew that about me, but you dive into my website, if I can talk today, geez, you'll see that, that that's there. I've helped plant three churches, and that's why I'm really excited about my guest today, who is a pastor for nearly 25 years, ministers as the lead pastor at The Summit in Centennial, Colorado, and his upcoming book, Overkilled, Finding Direction, Courage, and Meaningful Relationships in a Society Crippled by Social Media. Let's do this. Rob Singleton, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited, brother. Let's dive into this here because uh, we've got some common backgrounds. You know, I, I started playing uh, my guitar in church when I was 16 and leading the band, and I was playing drums when I was 10, and then I was ordained a few years back to just help plant three churches, and man, there's this thing that I saw, this common theme, and it's interesting because coming from ordained minister to ordained minister, there's a lot of pastors that exist, man, that can be labeled as narcissists, you know, and I'm assuming that you and I are not the case that way, but but you have some interesting perspectives on that, right? As far as narcissism and w- what the Bible really says. Well, I mean, honestly, there. I think the word for them today is rock star pastors. There you go. I've known a yeah. few. I'm, I'm not gonna. I mean, if you compare the whole concept of a rock star pastor with somebody like John the Baptist, there's there's really no there's nothing in common. John the Baptist was the guy saying Jesus must increase while I must decrease. And I think the theme for a lot of pastors is the polar opposite. I must increase and we'll fit Jesus in there somewhere, but I don't know where. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that. Narcissism is a pretty extreme way to say it, but I would say it fits in some cases. Sure. And uh, I mean, I've seen that, you know, I've even been victim to that too. And that was one of the reasons really why I even sort of held back from always being the guy in the churches, even though I was offered that a couple of times, you know, I even got a call the other day to say, Hey, would you be willing to jump back into this? But as the guy, I'm like, you know, I got a good thing going right now. <laughs> it's, a- <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, I've had people, I've had lunch with, we had this church, my wife and I planted in North Carolina that um, started in our living room and it grew to about 4,000 people with different multi-sites. So I would meet with church planters. I, st- I will never forget one guy who sat across the table at, at a restaurant and he just looked giddy, so excited about it. And he said, I really want you to tell me how I can do this because it looks like such a sweet gig. And I heard those words and I thought, (laughs) wow, you could not be coming from a, a, a more wrong perspective to get into ministry. It is not a sweet gig. (laughs) <laughs> no joke. Well, why do you, I mean, I know why you say that, but for people listening, you know, what are, what are some of the things you see? Because I mean, even being a CEO now myself, it's a, it's a different world, man. When you're the guy at the top, you know, or the girl at the top. I, you know, when it, when it was small, it's all family. Everybody digs in there. And I mean, you help plant three churches. My wife and I have helped plant seven. We've planted three. Uh, we've relaunched one. The one that we're at right now in Colorado is a complete relaunch. It was 35 years old and um, kind of set in his ways in a kind of a dying church. And 
In fact, it's a horrible situation. They were a grieving church. Mm. Pastor had gone on a mission trip to India, fallen off a cliff and died. It was in wow. all the news in Denver. And this church didn't even know if they really wanted to, to go on. And so I was actually consulting them, came to be their pastor, rebranded it, renamed it, relaunched it, got very serious about evangelism, shared the gospel. And by the way, I haven't forgotten the question. I'm coming around to it in a long way. And um, that listen, that first year being there, we gave the gospel a lot and more people got saved. Uh, the admin guy, he's still here. He's in his 70s and he's a great guy. And he said, with tears in his eyes, he said, Pastor, there's been more people saved this year than the previous 33 combined. Now, coming back to your question, when I said it's not always a sweet gig, it's because we had all these new Christians that came in and they brought all their messy life and all the stuff that that they bring, not knowing any better. And I had people, you know, condemning me and getting angry at me and leaving the church over baby Christians being here who needed us. So it's it's not just the guy who had lunch with me. He saw a church with thousands of people and he saw, you know, some some kind of TV stuff and multi-sites and all that. And so that's all he saw. And he figured that's what it was. But that's what you were talking about earlier. That's your rock star you know, pastor that's just kind of uh, really in it for all the wrong reasons and everything. I just activated Siri somehow. Oh, she pops up all the Not time, true. man, during these shows. It's pretty good. How do you She's kill always it? listening. <laughs> that's creepy. That's it's my just... realm. That's the cyber realm. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a phrase that you said that's that's interesting to me, and you know I've heard it in the in the because it really is a world in and of itself, the church world, if I call it that, right? And you said, you know, these brand new Christians bringing in their messy lives. And I've always seen that. I mean, I know where your heart is and where you're coming from on that because those individuals, and this is almost kind of narcissistic in some ways. And I know you have to deal with that with even your members at some point, because I've seen it to where even that statement, they feel that it's kind of really like about them. But when you say messy life, man, I even think that, hey, people are bringing in real life. (laughs) that's what it is to me yeah Yeah. i know yeah just that they're no matter what people are struggling with something everybody's always struggling with something and that is just real life you know so a a church is a place to be supported and lifted up in those areas and uh, how do you balance that because you have to i know you do you have to cater to your members who are existing right now you know, if we call it your base, which it can be, you know, whether it's politics or whether it's church, it's still called your base. And, but then bringing in new people because that's lifeblood, right? Just like a business brings in new customers, a church needs to bring in new people because that's, that's literally life that you're bringing into church at that point in time. How do you balance that? I mean, any church is, has to be a healthy ecosystem. There has to be people that are at any given week, especially in Denver. Uh, when I first came here five years ago, Huffington Post did an article and said that Denver was the most was the third most unchurched city in the country. That's constantly changing. Uh, but where I came from, Charlotte, it was a list of fifty. Where I came from, Charlotte was fifty. If that gives you any idea, so it just flipped it from basically on their list the most church city to the least church city. So when people come in with uh, with messy lives. I'm just talking about what you just said, ordinary lives. They're just doing everything they think is, is is normal. But if you've got a lot of people that have been in the church for 20 or 30 years, they think they're ruining it. 
they think they're coming in and bringing, I don't know, compromise, sin, uh, whatever. They don't realize, I think, when they say that, how dangerously close they are to the religious leaders in the New Testament that said that about Jesus. You know, why are you hanging out with all these drunkards and these partiers and all that? And so they're really on the wrong side of that uh, when when they act like that. How I balance it is, you know, after 25 years of this and so many churches, um, I don't apologize for it. I don't have time for it. If they're going to if they're going to be that offended by brand new people whose lives are changed, they're not going to fit at the summit. I usually recommend another church that they'd fit at better. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's probably the politest way you could ever put that yeah. too. Because it's Yeah, I, I just had a vision of you down the street. <laughs> so. yeah, no joke. Because <laughs> uh, here's the funny thing, right? As a pastor, and I know this, you know, because you're put on you're put on a pedestal, you know, almost like a holier than thou pedestal because it's just people look up to you. But just like anybody else, we have real human being thoughts. Just like <laughs> it, it comes to anger, it comes to other things, especially when you're dealing with people in those scenarios, man. I mean, there's some legitimate like WTF moments. That, that pop up there are, here. and I have the gift of sarcasm, which my wife tells me is not one of the gifts. Uh, <laughs> doesn't matter. It's how, how God made me. So I sometimes... You know, I sometimes say things out loud that probably should not be said. <laughs> That's great. Um, so you're real too. I, I dig that. That's awesome. <laughs> I hope so. I I mean, I that's a lot of what I wrote about in in Overliked is that um, you know, just the the whole need to write the book was watching people present fake optics, watching people try so hard to be liked that we I mean, think about it. we live in a culture right now where we talk about what we were talking about before people getting scared of people coming in who are real and who are raw. If they look at what they're doing on social media, I'm thinking, well, you're being fake on there. You're putting a picture of yourself from 15 years ago and saying that's you. You're writing like every vacation you take is is Hawaii. That's not that's not real. So why does it bother you so much when real people, authentic, struggling people come into a place that's supposed to be a hospital for sinners anyway it, it's crazy i get worked up i need to calm down no no down dude enough. come on get jacked up you're not jacked up enough yet come on <laughs> you mentioned your book man let's dive into that real quick because i love this you know finding direction courage and meaningful relationships in a society crippled by social media yeah that, that's uh yeah it comes out uh april to, i've got a, an arc copy of it that's what's going to look like an obvious you see the obvious play on the colors of Facebook and stuff, but it's not, it's not a ding on social media. In fact, I start out right away um, saying, I love technology. I mean, I'm the first one to jump on everything that comes down the pike uh, for these connections and networking and honestly leveraging the gospel and getting the word out. I just got really concerned five or six years ago when I saw people take it from a, a helpful thing to their whole life. I mean, they're immersed in it. It's almost like their real life is lost and everything they do is to present an avatar or uh, a type of person they think people would like. You know, they're tired of being lonely, whatever. So they remake themselves, put it on social media, say, how do you like me now? But it's gotten so bad now they can't even go out of the house because <laughs> people will see the real them and go, wait, I, that's not who was on social. It's a real mess. And it's infiltrated the church. 
Yeah, no doubt. It's interesting you're talking about it in that perspective too, because I think stories on social media have changed that dynamic just a little bit. And uh, the way that it was explained to me, at least by my branding people a while back, where you know your your feed, at least as a public figure, your feed is the the movie, right? It's the it's the feature film, and then your story is kind of like behind the scenes. It's the real because, generally speaking, in society, people are craving the real now, man. You know, not, 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 I'm not talking about the church as a generalization right now. I'm talking about just society as a whole. They're craving the real. You see that in politics. You, you see that in the workplace. You see that across the board. And even from the individuals like we've been talking that those new Christians that come into the church, right, that have never really stepped foot through those doors before, they're also craving the real. They're craving the, the real God that they're in search for. They're craving for real connection with other human beings on the planet. The, it's almost like a, in, a, in a way, yeah, they have this stuff on social media, but now they're turning to real life for real life. Yeah, they even have, um, I wish I knew how to use stories a little bit better because uh, most of my pastor friends, even some of them that have you know, huge followings on Instagram are almost exclusively doing stories four or five times a week. And they're not even, they're barely posting anymore as far as static, you know, filtered posts. So, uh, you know, you're right. They are craving that. I'm thinking of one gal, actually, she wrote the forward on the book, Lisa Turkhurst, um, who's really big in, in women's ministry. And she's gone almost exclusively to the Instagram stories and she'll just be there with her phone, no makeup, walking down and gets 10 times more reaction on that than she does on some filtered, you know, verse with a few, with a little bit of commentary. For sure. I, I almost, think you're right about that. I almost think we're in process of writing one of your Sunday sermons here too. You know, <laughs> well, I hope it's being recorded. Yeah. So I will, yep. do, I'll take this. <laughs> Right on. I mean, I'll get a week off. Yeah, for sure. It's just what we're talking about, you know, the, the the existing church people. But imagine if they just open themselves up, because if those those church people who have been in the church for thirty years, you know, that's like the feed on Instagram or, or on Facebook. But now, if they just shifted that over into the stories, man, and just open themselves up in vulnerability, you know, the interesting part to me is that you know most kind of like bottle themselves up. Right to where they don't want to expose anything because they're judging themselves, and what they don't realize is that they're not really being judged by anybody else that comes into the church because they're dealing with the same stuff, and they're looking for people that are dealing with the same stuff to help them through their stuff. You know, there might be churches where, well, forget the might be. There are churches where you walk in there and they are judging you. Uh, I, you've probably heard this saying that uh, the church is supposed to be a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. But the fact is a lot of churches are country clubs for saints. When you walk in, they're doing the same thing I talk about in the book. They are posing. They are presenting uh, a likable version of themselves. They're not talking about what's really going on, the hurt, the loneliness, especially all the COVID stuff that's going on. So they're not really getting any help. And I think that's why when COVID shut a lot of churches down, uh, Barna, I think, just did a study and said that they they uh, pulled 500 churches that had reopened, uh, and and I guess more Republican states have have reopened fully. And out of those, the average was 36 percent of the people had come back, even though they were wide open. 
So I think these people that came to church and, and realized, hey, I'm people are being fake and I'm not really sharing stuff. And COVID let me see how lonely I am and I'm hurting. I need help. I, I don't want to go to a place where everybody's faking it. And, and so, I mean, you come to the summit, you're definitely not going to get that. We're about as raw as can be. In fact, what's really weird is, you know, I've obviously aged out beyond the millennials. Uh, and I've got a lot of pastor friends who are pulling their hair out going, you know, how can I get more millennials? How can I reach this generation? And I almost don't even know how it happened, but our fastest growing demographic is millennials. They are pouring into our church uh, twice the rate of everybody else. And, um, and I think it's because it's real. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you think that's just because there, there is a craving now in society at large just for the real? Yeah, and to talk about, um, you know, it's funny that a lot of churches are sidestepping the tough issues. They won't talk about social justice. They won't talk about what the Bible has to say about sex. They won't talk about uh, BLM. They won't, I mean, they won't talk about the things that everyone's talking about. And, um, and if you're hurting or divided on those issues, then you want to go to the, you want to go to church to hear what God's word has to say about it. I have preached on a lot of those lately. Um, you know, I do have a, I do have a pretty deep conviction that I don't give God's truth without grace, uh, because that that's militant and I don't give just grace without truth, obviously, because that that's pandemonium. I'm anything goes if you're just giving grace without truth. So combining them gives people truth. But when they know you love them and you care, they don't mind how difficult the topics are. We just did a sermon two weeks ago. It's already up on the YouTube channel about social justice versus biblical justice. That's the title of it. That probably got 10 times uh, the viewership of any sermon I've done in a couple of months. That's incredible. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy topics. It was, we went there and wow. So yeah, they want to hear truth. That is truth. There's a, I'll share something with you. I went through a spiritually intensive weekend about a month ago and in the process, you know, it cleared out some of just traumas and junk that I was hanging on to myself. And I remember getting back to the airport here in Chicago where I'm, where I live, where studios at and I'm walking through and my whole trauma was basing things on accomplishments, you know, and coming from a deeply churched background that I have, because it was always drilled in, you know, you need to read your Bible. You need to, I mean, things like you have to spend 30 minutes a day. You have to get down on your knees 30 minutes a day. You have to do all these things. And it was always positioned from the aspect of this is what is acceptable to God. And it was just something ever since I was young, you know, and, and you see this in a lot of churches too. And it's sad to where it's just drilled into you. And uh, then with things that happened with my dad dying early and just other things, it's like I had to produce accomplishments in every area of my life. And then I realized after being able to unseat that lie or that untruth and recognize that I don't have to produce accomplishments for anything in order to be fulfilled. You know, it, it, now I come from a place of I get to rather than I have to. And it's just extreme freedom. As I walked into the airport, man, I, I or deep planed and I'm in the middle of this large aisle. I mean, people going, it, I wish I had like a drone overhead because it seemed like it was slow motion. Everything became a blur and I just stopped and I started crying because I recognized in that moment that in order to have God's love, in order to have his approval, if you want to call it that, I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray. 
while these are things that foster a deeper connection with him, you don't have to do them in order to have his love. Yeah, you don't have to jump through hoops, and nor is God up there expecting you to jump through hoops to get his approval. It's a, it's a backwards way uh, of thinking about it, but I did the same thing. My dad and I haven't uh, had a relationship uh, for years. I haven't seen him or spoken to him in 15 years. Uh, we're estranged, and it caused me to do the same thing. He's very successful in the banking industry, and I found myself doing the same thing. I. I based my acceptance, my acceptance, and even viewed God, my heavenly father, and put characteristics of my earthly father on him. And he said, I'm sure he's going to act like that. or I'm sure he's not going to like me if I don't hit this level. And man, that's one of the biggest traps that Satan gets us to fall into. It really is. And then you throw in social media like you're talking about it, too, and it just fuels that fire in a very negative way, too. You know, especially with some of the things that you see from churches that are putting that out. It was interesting when, when COVID hit and it seems like you didn't follow this, which is awesome that it was almost like everyone felt it was church as usual. Well, no, it wasn't church as usual. <laughs> Hardly. Yeah. I, I know. You probably saw this, you know, in churches that have never streamed online before, how they were trying to do that, but they were still, you know, having the same. It was weird, man, because I started watching it, you know, watching church, which was interesting because I was always one that would typically go, of course. But I would see, and you talk about social media and just the how everything's filtered. And you would see, the, you know, the big bands, I mean, mega churches, man, you know, bands on stage and everything during the worship time. And they'd have these swooping robotic arm cameras around, but then they would catch glimpses of the auditorium and they would be empty seats. You know, and it was just when I, when I saw this, I was like, guys, what are you doing? This is not church as usual, you know, but they were still doing the same stuff. How did you adapt and do that so that you could still stay relative in the point and still reach people? pastors probably say this a lot, but it really was a God thing. Uh, our church that was large in North Carolina already had the cameras and the high def and the ability to go live. And we already knew all those things, but it had been about six or seven years. And so this church, we weren't, we weren't as ready as we could have been. We were growing and they had hit a size larger than anything previous. And so we felt like God was really moving in about a month after our highest attendance ever COVID hit. But we sold some property and decided that God was really calling us to branch out and get better online. And since I had already done this, I knew how to do it. Uh, and we spent a lot of money and got the best cameras and the best equipment to go online. And about a month later, we had no choice. We had about 30 people watching um, beforehand. And our biggest week uh, was probably about two months ago. We had 9,000. So that, the amount of increase, and that's simply because, yeah, now I preach way more to the camera than I do to the audience. Because even though we've been wide open and we didn't, you know, we've been wide open for how long? Probably six to eight months. I mean, we did what everybody did. We didn't know what it was, what COVID was. We didn't know how dangerous. We wanted to protect people. So we definitely, um, you know, tried to, to be diligent about this. But when it became pretty clear 
uh, I like the name of you. Is it Liberty on Lockdown? Is that what you? Liberty Lockdown. You got it. Yeah. Liberty Lockdown. Yeah. I mean, when it became clear that Liberty was on lockdown and that's what was going on. And I, and I really got the information, uh, you know, the information, they didn't change every five minutes. Then I realized, you know, this is the worst thing we could possibly do. The worst thing you could do is shut down the one place people go for help when they're lonely and depressed, suicide is up. Everything was, was crashing emotionally and spiritually and even physically, because obviously suicide gets into all three. We, we went wide open. We got a lot of flack for it, but we learned by fire very, very quickly. I've seen some of those churches you're talking about where it looks like they're holding up their iPhone and, and going live. And, <laughs> and I'm just going, guys, you better, you better study this. That doesn't translate. That doesn't work. For sure. No doubt. And it, what, what I really appreciated too was even, uh, you know, cause at the beginning when everything was just like, cause the first two weeks, especially nobody really knew what this thing was, you know, fr from, a, from a health perspective, nobody really knew what it was. And there was a, a church down the street. They have attendance of around 15,000, uh, Parkview church, pastor Tim Harlow. And I saw him immediately. Where, where are you at? Where is that? It's uh, a Chicago suburb. So that's Orland park, Illinois. Okay. I know that. I know yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good dude. And I remember the, the first week that sure they had the band on the stage right and it was awesome because it, it first like yeah okay that's familiar because everyone just had that in person just two weeks before <laughs> whatever but then it was an immediate shift to where it went to pastor tim in his living room because that's where everybody else was i mean it was still high quality cameras and all of this but he attached what people had known and also was saying this is where we're at today and i'm coming to you living room to living room just to get down on your level so that I can have a good conversation about God with you. It was incredible to see that fast pivot, man. I did quite a few from my, uh, from my living room and from my study. And, you know, we've, I think the thing that worked best for us is a part of what you're saying. We, we kept a lot of the worship people and some other folks on stage and literally sat them down in couches and everything. And so when I preached, they'd be right around me. So it was almost like we created another room and I'd talk to them while I was talking to the people online. And I brought up another iPad and that one is just live. That's just the chat. That's our, you know, we run Facebook, YouTube and all that, but we also, uh, if you have a large audience, you also have kind of a, ours is called Boxcast. It's what Craig Rochelle and Life Church uses. And it's, uh, it's, it's more stable and it's better than Facebook and YouTube for interaction. So I'm literally talking to them. I write into my uh, sermon every week ways for them to use emojis and do things on chat. Um, it's never going to be as good as in person, but it is what it is. And that's where they're at. But so if dude, you don't you find some 9, way to engage people watching every week, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. You, you better figure out you better. And I've, I've had some people complaining going, you're not looking at us like you used to. Yeah. I thought, Why would I look at a couple hundred people? No doubt. I mean, guys, you got to help me here. I'm not going to ignore the people on the camera. Yeah, right on. That's awesome. I, I, I love how you've moved in that direction. You know, I know in your book too, you talk about the need for authentic relationships. You know, and I'm sure there's a lot that it, that's part of that too. How do you help instill that into your congregation, especially with the social media stuff? Man, we uh, we tell people to join, and it's not just a, a a fad. I know a lot of churches have small groups, uh, but for us, we're not. You've, you've probably been in ministry, heard the same before, but people will say we're not a church 
uh, with small groups. We're a church of small groups. And that's us. So I always tell people, listen, when you come on on Sunday or Saturday night or whatever, you that's one meal. That's your vitamins. I mean, that's a that's a supplement. That can't be everything that you get. If it is, if you compare that to physical food, you ate one meal a week, you'd be dead inside of a couple of months. And yet people think that's their whole spiritual life. So we tell people for authenticity and to really get real with people, you got to get in a small group, at least five to 10, maybe 15 other people. And that's where you share stuff. That's where you don't walk in and try to fake it. I mean, you're less likely to walk into hopefully a room of eight other people and and completely fake it. In fact, you can't. They're sitting there five feet in front of you, looking at you. They can tell, you know, they can see your eyes. They can tell when you're upset. They can tell when you're crying. They can tell all this stuff that you can't see a hundred feet away from, from the speaker. So that's the place to really share your life. That's the place to get in deep. We have accountability groups, small groups, all of that. Um, and I think authenticity, just listen, and if it doesn't come out, in that, then our leaders are trained and our coaches are trained to pull it out. I mean, really try to get people talking. Uh, the worst thing that can happen is they just don't come back. And then they're right back in their plastic world. Just what you said about how weird it was watching church online. We well, can't do that forever. I mean, at, at some point this has to end. And I even tell our, our large, uh, I spent about a month in Africa. That's where I was when COVID happened. In February, my wife and I were on a one month six country um, uh, mission thing in Africa, trying to get some things set up to do some conferences there. And we were having trouble even getting back because they were putting all the masks out, taking the temperature, locking things down. And um, we already knew that when we get back, people are going to go into this. It looks something's going to happen. It looks like we're going to be sheltering. I didn't know it was going to get this bad or that it was going to last that long, but I was already thinking about how are we going to minister to people uh, knowing that this tsunami is coming? Yeah, that's interesting, man. So you were away when COVID hit then, and it was difficult for you to get back. Yeah. That's yeah. The, that's incredible. Uh, you talk in your book about breaking free from the grip that social media has. Well, what's a way to do that? Because we talked a little bit before the show, and you were saying that some people have been spending, what, like eight hours online or something, like, or on social media? Yeah, uh, I forget what it is. I, I think it's a, I think it's iPhone. Probably Androids are doing this too. But I don't remember signing up for this. But you know how your phone will tell you uh, you spent six average of six hours a day, and that's one hour more than last week. Yeah, Apple calls I it screen time, <laughs> which is scary because I'm thinking, where did I sign up to get this? But it's also very sobering, and and for most people, that's constantly eking up. Um, and so, I mean, I, I forgot the, what, what were you asking about that? No, about how to, how to break free of that, you know, cause it, it, it can be addictive in some, and it's almost like an escape for some people from what I see from actually dealing with things of life. Cause you go into this almost like matrix type world to where everything's sunshine and roses or media, you know, the negativity just so that you get fed from media, you know? How, yeah. It's funny. I use the matrix in there oh, do you? <laughs> uh, because I, I never thought, I mean, come on, that's such a far out movie and a premise, but freakishly we're living that. I mean, not exactly, but we are, we're literally plugged into a world where we put out false stuff 
to try and develop a well, we put out great optics about our life that we want received in such a way that will make people like us. And I think enough uh, studies have been done right now to, to show that these little thumbs up and these emojis and these positive feedback things, it's, it's like a drug. It is a dopamine. It, it does actually make your brain react to where you want more, to where if you get less, you get depressed and all of that. Um, so I've come up with some practical things in the book. Uh, I've even got things that people can do right now immediately because I think some people need to, you know, like a scratch record, they need to stop this thing now. They, they don't need to taper it down over the next three months. They're in such a critical place. One of them is I wrote a little deal called three decisions you can make today, right now uh, to break the strangleholds of social media. Um, and they're really simple things. You know, I read a study that says now the majority of Americans are taking their phone to bed with them. And so there's something right there. Don't sleep with your phone. I mean, it's not it's not your significant other. And, and people have, you know, married people, you got your wife or your husband right there in bed and the two of you have your phones on. So obviously that's a very destructive thing. How How quickly can you change that? Put it in another room. I mean, power it down, give your wife a password, your husband a password, let them power it down, let them have to bring it back up. Um, I talked about another thing was seven verses, seven scriptures to look at before you engage with social media. If you're going on there to Facebook and, you know, somebody wrote a post or a comment on, on your post and ripped you up one side and, and down the other, one of the verses is about vengeance being God's and and that it's a bad idea when you get into this cycle and try to, you know, one up the hateful things they said with things that you say, leave that to God. And I, th I feel like, you know, obviously you have seven different scenarios that tend to happen on Instagram or, or, or Facebook or whatever. And I had direct verses correlating with each example that just made you really think, you know, is am I about to go on here and do the exact opposite of what God's word says to do? I think it's less likely if you read a scripture that says, you know, don't do this, this displeases God, this hurts you, that you're going to go right on there and do it. So practical things like that for real quick ones. And then I have a whole article I wrote on narcissism and that's a longer one. That's for people that are, that really want to take a, like a 21 days course that I have to, to really detox from, so you'll, you'll go on a social media fast. You will literally, it'll, it'll probably take you that long to just develop the habit of, of stopping so obsessed and checking, you know, Instagram first thing in the morning, you wake up, you don't even get out of bed. You have your phone and you're checking it before you even get out of bed. So there's a lot of, believe it or not, there's a lot of really quick things you can do that can kind of put a stop in your life immediately and can bring some relief pretty quick. And then we can get into the the longer, more sustaining things, I think. Yeah. When you talk about narcissism too, you have a, an example of Saul and David, right? In your article. Yeah. It's really the whole, I mean, it's a, it's funny. My publisher was going to, uh, would you rather have more people that don't know Christianity read this or more Christians? And it's like, what kind of question is that? It's for everybody. Everybody's in this trap, but I do use the story of Saul and David uh, throughout because I think Saul was a poster child narcissist. I mean, you think about <laughs> it. This is a guy who was picked 
picked as king because of everything outward. Everything was optics. It, the scripture says he was head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel. It said he was handsome. Uh, talked about him being a ladies' man. Everything is, you know, more on what would get you on the cover of GQ instead of what would make you a godly good king. And then as he began to progress as king, everything was about how do the people feel about me? Do they like me? I heard they're singing a song about me. You remember the song? Saul has slain his thousands and and then the women were adding another verse that says, but David has slain his 10,000s. And Saul's reaction to that showed how narcissistic and self-focused he was. All he cared about was, I don't care what I have to do to David to get my likes back, but this is, all, this is how I get my, my ego. This is how I get my self-worth. If those likes start to drop, I'm nothing. And you look at Saul, you think, wow, nothing's changed. In 3,000 years, nothing's changed. We're still this way. Yeah, for sure. And then Saul, of course, too. You know, he was one of the biggest tools of a narcissist is devaluing. And look at what he did to David the entire time. Oh, yeah. Lied, tried to kill him, marginalize him, turn his family against him, his wife again. Yeah. Just, and that's also what a narcissist will do. One of the main things they'll do is they won't just take every opportunity to elevate themselves. They do that more, not by lifting themselves up, but by just decimating everyone else and putting them so far down. And that's what Saul did. If I lower David, who he perceived as his main competition, and, and, you know, and sadly, he wasn't any competition to Saul at all. Saul, it, Saul's life never had to go that way. If he would have just worshipped God instead of worshipping himself, he could have been king. Yeah, no joke. I remember, too, when David had the opportunity to kill Saul. And he turned away from that just because it was, you know, what, what was the point at that time? And I, I took that as a, as a good lesson for when you have to deal with a narcissist in life too, you know, and, and I've, I've been there, you know, to the point to where it's been a, a potential even church split, you know, between myself and the, and the lead pastor that was there. And I had the opportunity, man, <laughs> just like, like David, ironically, my middle name is David, you know, which is interesting too. Yeah. But I, I had the opportunity and I could have laid them out, you know, from a, from a cultural sense, from a societal relationship sense, but I, and maybe it was even wrong, but it, yeah. it, that never ends well. You got it right on. It, but, it just doesn't. And that's going back to that verse when I was talking about the yeah. uh, vengeance is that's God's anyway. He does a better job at it, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah, no doubt. Than I ever could. For sure. And five years later too. I mean, you see that, that, that actually happened that way too, because I, I was David in that scenario and I, chose to remove myself from the environment <laughs> instead of actually going on the offensive and the, the attack. So I changed my environment and I'm so much better off because of that. So is my family. Honestly, I applaud you for that because I've seen it go both ways. And, oh yeah. And all it does is hurt the church. Yeah, for sure. I'm with you. That's interesting, man. So you talked about to worship of God versus worship of self. You know, can you, can you define that a little bit more? Well, uh, Satan's first role in the, uh, in the Bible is the worship leader. He's the worship leader of heaven. Scripture says he hovers over the throne of God way back. He doesn't anymore, obviously. but And he was to bring about worship through all of the heavenly beings, all the angels, to worship God. We don't know how long it took, but at some point, as he's the worship leader and that worship is coming and he's deflecting it towards God as he should, he looked at himself and said, I deserve this. 
I want this worship. And that's the first sin. That's pride. And really what it boils down to, it's funny, I call it self-worship. Uh, I call it getting to a point where you're saturated with, um, you know, wanting to bring accolades and everything to yourself. And then when you get to the point where it goes too far and you cross over and sin, that's the title of the book. You know, I had somebody look at, which is over liked. I had somebody look at it the other day and go, is that, is that, do you mean you're over this whole like stuff? No, it doesn't mean that. It means oversaturated. <laughs> we are, the reason that it doesn't work getting more likes. I mean, think about it. Think about anybody that has a million followers on Instagram. Um, and they, uh, you'd think, wow, if I, if I had a million followers on Instagram, I'm monetized. Everything's going great. That's all I would need, but it's never all they need. Then they want 2 million or they want 10 million, or they look at somebody that's got 50 million and go, why can't I? And, and they don't realize that with that attitude, you were probably already too far gone when you had, when you had 10 followers. If wow, that's yeah. your attitude was about, I'm trying to get this, um, which is really, what is a like? What is saying that I want all these followers? I want all these likes. I want all these accolades. I want all these people to like me. What are you really asking for? You're saying, I want all these people to idolize me. I want them to worship me. You would never say that. And you'd probably be, a, you being generic, you'd probably be offended by that. But that's exactly what Satan did. I don't like deflecting this to God. I want this to come to me. I want it to be all about me. And what I say in the book is that you aren't created for that. You're not worthy of worship, which means worthship means the one alone that is worthy of that. If you're giving that to yourself, it doesn't work because that's not what you were created for. Then until you get back to worshiping God, which I do contrast Saul and David, because the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. The key to David was, I mean, incredible popularity outdid Saul in every way, but he never went looking for it. He loved God. He's like a little kid his whole life, chasing God, loving God, worshiping God. And what did God throw in? popularity, fame. Uh, everybody loved David and he never asked for it. Saul asks for it, clamors for it, wants to be worshiped and never got it. It's very, very sad. Rob, I appreciate you being on my man. And I hope this gives people tools because 2021 is... Well, it's starting out to be just as rough of a year as 2020 was. <laughs> for, yeah, I would have thought it would have ended by now. Yeah, for sure. Just a lot of things going on. And Social media has been something that a lot of individuals have just went into deeper over the past year, too, with the remote workforce. I mean, it's just there. It's just readily yeah. available to just kind of get lost in oneself. And I appreciate that. RobSingleton.com, right? www.robsingleton.com. Yeah. And Instagram is at Rob underscore Singleton. And the summit is the www.thesummit.online, right? Yep. Awesome. I wish they all could have been the same, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Thank you so much for being on. And your book is coming out very, very soon here. And I'm excited. I'm going to pick up a copy too. Awesome. Good deal. Awesome. Thanks, Tell brother. people about it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. What's shaking? Thank you for joining me on the All In Podcast. Click the subscribe button and smash that bell for notifications. Text me 312-535-8520. Follow me on social media at Mr. Rick Jordan. See you next episode.
I am Rick Jordan, and I approve this message.